Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined remotely, as I have been the last few months, by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, man. What's going on? I mean, same old. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like that's been that deep sigh has been your reaction essentially since lockdown started. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's just me, right? It's like the no. default, the deep sigh, then the okay, all things considered. Yeah. Um, all the qualifiers, all the caveats apply. Um, no, I mean, I'm okay. I've been playing some tennis recently. That's been kind of a game changer for me uh, as far as my mental health. A really important component of that, just like having uh, a kind of familiar outdoor summer activity that is, you know, as far as activities go, is about as safe as it gets from a social distancing perspective. So that's been pretty nice. And apart from that, it's, I don't know, life at this point in time, dealing with what we're dealing with just kind of is what it is. So, yeah, no, I, I hear you there. Um, haven't been playing tennis, but definitely trying to uh, get outside, get some exercise, working out, get some runs in just because yeah, it, uh, it'll drive you mad. Got to get the body moving, you know, a body in movement, uh, breeds movement and a body at rest breeds rest. But anyway, this is not a uh, self-help podcast or uh, anything like that. This is an NBA podcast. And while there is reason to still be skeptical about the NBA's plan, we are not going to spend an hour today talking about why we're skeptical. Although I'm sure we will get into a couple of the reasons based on the numbers in the States and especially in Florida where the NBA will return. But there is actual you know, NBA news to talk about today with respect to the fact that between some of the players opting out of playing, uh, an injury here or there, some minor signings, uh, by, by the bubble teams, you know, th- there's some minor news at least to talk about from a basketball perspective of, of how things may go down in Orlando if we actually get there and and the season resumes. Before we get into all of that, maybe we can just take some time off the top, even just a few minutes. Uh, Vince Carter, no surprise, we knew he was done once the Hawks were no longer going to be part of the season, but it's official, 22 seasons up, 22 seasons down, Vince Carter has retired. You wrote a really great piece about him. I want to say what, maybe like two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, it was basically I wrote it when the NBA announced a 22 team plan and we knew the Hawks weren't going to be taking part in it. I guess it was possible that the Hawks would waive him and then he could sign with another team and enter the bubble for like the eight game uh, regular season finish and like the playoffs. That technically was feasible, right? They could have done that during this this yeah. transaction window if you really wanted to. But I think, you know, at 43 years old, 22 years in the league, he seemed ready to hang him up. And I don't think there was anything left for him to do in that Orlando bubble, even though it's basically home for him. You yeah. know, would have been a, a hop, skip, and a jump for him to get there. Uh, I think it seems reasonable that uh, he'd probably rather relax and spend some time with his family than ramp up for like an eight game regular season and probably like not really end up playing a whole bunch, especially in the playoffs. So the logical move, I think for him calling it quits, I I just, it's insane to me. And you mentioned the piece that I wrote and obviously I kind of talked about that a lot in that piece, but like, it's just, it's just wild to me that Vince Carter of all people wound up being the longest tenured player in NBA history for anyone who remembers what the narrative around him was at the beginning of his career, it was, he didn't have the commitment. He didn't love the game. He was fragile, injury prone. Like if you'd have told anybody back then that Vince was going to end up playing more seasons in the league than any player in NBA history, not a single person would have believed you. Possibly not even Vince himself. It's not just the durability, which in itself was obviously surprising based on the fact, you know, he went through that period where people were calling him Wince Carter and and he couldn't stay in the lineup and his commitment was being questioned. But it's also the type of veteran he became, you know, around the same time people were calling him Wince Carter and questioning his commitment. They were also questioning what type of presence he was, you know, around a basketball team. And and I'm well aware that all stems from just one, one period of his career when things went sour with the Raptors, there was rumors that he tipped off the Sonics about a play they were about to run. Obviously, you know, he kind of runs himself out of town, but also gets run out of town, gets booed in Toronto for how many years. And, you know, the stigma followed him for a little while. And so not only do I think it's crazy that he's going to be remembered as this durable veteran that played the longest career in NBA history, but also that 
he turned himself into or became the definition of the veteran locker room guy like that that you want around a young team that's going to teach young guys the right habits and how to work and how to prepare and how to conduct themselves on and off the court and and that to me um you know is is worth mentioning just as much as the durability now in terms of the durability like go back to the 2005 2006 season and Vince Carter went through a stretch of like seven or eight seasons where he played 75 to 82 games. He played 61 of 66 in the lockout year. It was eight seasons in a row that he played at least 75 seasons in an 82 game season, played 61 games in the 66 game season. Then it started to tail off um, over the last five years. But yeah, he, he went through this crazy run of durability. Um, Like I mentioned, he he turned himself into this uh, really dependable veteran in a way for, for young teams. And, you know, as you point out in the post, like he, he never did what everyone expected of a ringless veteran to do, which was to eventually kind of go chase that ring and sign with a Warriors or like, you know, so many people expected at some point in the last couple of years that he would have joined the Raptors, not just for the nostalgia, but because it would have made sense for the nostalgia and to bookend his career, but also because they would have given him a chance to finally win. And, and you know, I don't think it's to his credit or to his fault. It's just, you know, he's someone and we're all different but he he didn't want that right and yeah i mean he didn't do the ring chasing thing at the end no. of his career as so many in his position have done and would have done he instead was just signing on with these kind of in some cases teams that were like going nowhere um in the case with the hawks it's a rebuilding team with a lot of young players that gave him a chance i think to be a mentor um but also he wanted to sign in places where he could actually play some legitimate minutes because at the end of the day he just wanted to play and ultimately i mean he played for 13 years after he last made an all-star team crazy like he spent as much of his career as a role player as he did as a star and i honestly think he seemed way happier and way more comfortable playing that role than he ever did when he was kind of in the limelight as a superstar face of a franchise, like I just don't think that that role necessarily suited him. I don't know if it's necessarily what he wanted. And to me, he seemed like way more himself and just way more comfortable in his own skin playing that role as kind of like a veteran leader, 20, 25 minute a game guy um, than he ever did, you know, when he was really in the spotlight in the way that he was early in his career. Yeah, and you want to talk about in the spotlight. I think most of our viewers get it, but for like for any younger people or like people that don't know about Prime Peak Vince, when we talk about in the spotlight, this is not just about being the face of the franchise. He was unquestionably for a couple of years in the early 2000s, the most popular NBA player on the planet. He was the highest vote getter in what, three or four consecutive All-Star games. A couple of those was not even close. Once he won the dunk contest, obviously it, it took his superstardom to another level. He was, you know, in in many ways, the face of the NBA in those early 2000s in terms of like commercials and all that. And, you know, he was Nike's big guy for a while. There was people calling him the next MJ, which obviously was ludicrous. But, you know, like those conversations were really out there. Like that is the kind of star power Vince had at the turn of the century. And as you mentioned, you know, I think I think the role he took on later in his career seemed to suit him more. I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, that like he he still wanted to play minutes because it was different compared to what most veterans his age do. But when you really think about it, it makes sense. Like if you're going to stay in the NBA, you've already got all the money in the world and you're going to stay away from your family for like six to eight, nine months. You can make the argument, yeah, why would you do that if you don't have a chance to win? But the other argument is like, but why would you do it if you're not going to get to actually play? You know, I think Vince kind of forged a a different kind of path maybe that, who knows, maybe we will see other vets take it. Um, The the last thing I want to say about him is just that growing up in Toronto, I think when we were younger, the the relationship with Vince was very complicated. And, And for this city, I think it always will be, even though, you know, wounds have been healed. But the one thing I'll always remember is even after he left, even even when he maybe wasn't the player he was at his peak, but was still a good player, like long after the days of half man, half amazing, you could always count on whenever he touched that Air Canada Center court of him still being that guy. And Raptors fans hated him for it, but for whatever reason, when he walked in that building, 
he seemed to summon that half man, half amazing character again. And, and in, you know, at the time it sucked and I hated watching it, but in hindsight to look back on it. And I think back, I was like, you know what? That was actually pretty cool because it's like, even though it was a very love hate relationship, whether he intended to or not, he still ended up saving his best for Toronto and giving Toronto his best, even when they didn't want it. Yeah. I mean, and I think that like that whole thing really does speak to the complicated nature of the fan athlete relationship and for so much of Toronto, I think, you know, regardless of all the context and all the different reasons that there were that that situation went so sour, some of which I don't think we'll ever fully understand. And I don't know if we can say for sure who was most at fault there. But the fact is, I think for a lot of us, it sort of felt like Vince was turning his back on us personally. And we really internalized that and like feeling, I mean, the Raptors and their fans like didn't have anything to get excited about or cheer about for most of the last 25 years. Right. It's, it's been like until it's been seven years now where they've been like a, a competent and in the last few years, far more than competent franchise, but like in the wake of Vince leaving the, like the only thing really to provide a distraction from the slog of meaningless regular season basketball was hating him. And so those visits when he came and when the fans could kind of get keyed up to boo the shit out of him, it just sort of gave us something to do. And, you know, it, it's weird. It's kind of unfortunate that the the relationship between him and the fan base got so sour. I think it's great that in recent years that um, that relationship started to heal a little bit. And I think the the appreciation for him has really returned I think there are a lot of people who would tell you that he should and possibly will eventually have his jersey retired in Toronto. I I think that happens like very shortly after fans are allowed back in. Yeah, I don't know. I still kind of feel like if, like, I don't know if he should be the first guy. I just sort of feel like it's got to be Lowry before anybody else. That's me. Not that it really matters at the end of the day who the first one is. I feel like we can accept that Lowry is the greatest Raptor in franchise history. Mm Mm-hmm while also acknowledging just the way timelines go that Vince is going to get it retired first. Not, not, and, and I don't think that should mean anything regarding like where he stands. And I just think, you know, that's the way timelines go. Although you can make the argument if, if we're going to, if we're going to use that argument, then Bosch should already have his. Uh, yeah. The, the Bosch one's sort of complicated as well. I think yeah. not that Bosch wasn't, you know, a consummate pro when he played in Toronto and obviously, you know, made the all-star team, I think in his last five seasons there, and it wasn't really his fault the team couldn't do much. He wasn't surrounded with a whole lot of talent. So um, it's just such a forgettable era of Raptors basketball, the Chris Bosh era. So I, as much as he probably deserves it in terms of, you know, if you just look at it objectively, it doesn't generate like a lot of good memories or good feelings when you think back on the Chris Bosh years, you know, through no fault of his own. But um I will, I'll close by saying this about Vince. I mean, in those Nets years, those early Nets years, especially when he would come back and just absolutely eviscerate the Raptors. Like I remember specifically there was that game, I think in 06, when he had when they flat bought. fight with Mo Peterson, yeah. who Mo Peterson ends up getting ejected. Vince yeah. ends up hitting a, a buzzer beating three. The Nets were down two yeah. uh, to win the game. I like have such a distinct memory of watching that game. That was my first year at university. I was watching that in residence. And... Then there was a game actually like a couple years later when it was it was very similar. Like the shot that he hit at the end of regulation to tie the game was very similar to the one that he'd hit to win that game a couple years earlier. And then he wins that game on an inbounds play with like two seconds left, reverse alley-oop dunk, yeah. hangs on the rim, and... And I think that was in double overtime and then just walks off. And I was watching that game at, uh, it was called the grad club or the grad house. It was like the, the Dalhousie campus bar with a few friends. And it was early in the season. That was the year the Raptors had Jermaine O'Neal. We were all yeah, yeah. like excited about that team. They were like four and two to start the season. <laughs> and so we were getting really excited. And like the Raptors had been leading that whole game by like double digits. Vince had led this comeback and finally won it in double OT. And we were just 
so devastated when that happened. And we're all just sitting there literally not saying anything, hanging our heads. And the bartender comes over and says, man, you guys look like you could use a whiskey. (laughs) Perked up because we thought he was just sort of taking pity on us and was offering us whiskeys on the house. So we're like, yeah, what the hell? We'll have whiskey. So he brings us all whiskeys and we drink them and we're starting to feel a little better. (laughs) And then he brings us the bar tab and they were like $15 a piece. Just rubbing salt in the wound. Uh, And honestly, like that, that season never got back on track after that. Yeah. Yeah. They were 33 and 49 that year. And so for a while, it it just felt like even if, even if Vince wasn't on the Raptors, there was some like psychic connection there where he was just, I don't know. He he was destroying the team from the outside. uh, Whereas before it felt like he was destroying the team from the inside. So that was like definitely a, a really complicated time and a tough time to be a Raptors fan. And I think the fact that that so much good has happened for the franchise in the wake of all that uh, is is what's really allowed that healing to finally happen. I think it's interesting that you bring up the whiskey story because for anyone that's watched The Carter Effect on Netflix, uh, Vince Carter also, big part of the reason why Toronto has bottle service. So, um, <laughs> all right. And I think we can leave the Vince uh, the Vince segment on that note. I mentioned we're going to get into like the, you know, some of the minor transactions that are going to affect the actual basketball being played potentially in Orlando before we get to that. So two Suns players, three Kings players, Nikola Jokic in Serbia, Malcolm all Brogdon. tested Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah. How could I forget? Derek Jones Jr. Uh, Derek Jones Jr. Um, I'm missing someone. I'm forgetting someone else. Uh, but it'll Jabari, come to me. Jabari Parker. I mean, yes, you Jabari Parker. Although he's part of the Kings, right? Yeah. It was also, um, um, I think it was Woj reported that four players on a West playoff team, an unidentified West playoff team, had tested positive. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I guess the question really is, well, one, I don't think any of that's surprising, right? They're just now starting to get tested again because this is phase one of the uh, of the bubble reopening plan where they're supposed to be back in their home markets this week and, and individual workouts only, but they are starting to be tested. So you're going to get positives. That, that shouldn't be surprising. But I guess really the only question before we get into the the more basketball-related news is, has anything that's happened since the last time we've spoken further encouraged you or dissuaded you from your feeling about whether this is going to happen or not? Encouraged? Are you just definitely kind of, not? Um, yeah. And dissuaded? I mean, look, I've been skeptical about this from day one, as you know. I still think, like, okay, I'll put this back back on you, Cash. All right. If if I'm asking you, I'm not going to do the gun to the head thing because I always find that to be just sort of a morbid scenario to draw. But like, let's say that you were betting on whether they finish the season. Are you betting? What are we betting? Fifteen fifteen dollar whiskey shot? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Are you are you betting on it getting done? Because I think there's a decent chance that it'll start. But as far as I'm actually seeing it through to its conclusion, that's where I, I start to get pretty skeptical. I'm not sure I would bet on it on it getting done. But my thing is, I think if it starts, it's getting done. I think the only thing worse for the NBA or any sports league uh, for that matter is financially, it, it would obviously be worse to just have it shut down without coming back. But I don't know, like optically, I feel like it would be worse to start and then stop again. And the way well, I see it is, the way I see it is they should, like we we've been over this like thirty thousand times. We know say like health and safety wise, they should not be doing this. Okay, but what I will say is like all of my concern, most of my concerns revolve around not necessarily once we're in the they're in the bubble. Even though that it, there are concerns there because the Disney employees are still going in and out. It's not truly a secure bubble. I get that, but my main concerns revolve around getting 22 teams and everyone involved and the rest and everyone to that bubble virus free. Like I'm still skeptical. They can even do that, especially given what's going on in the States with the cases, you know, setting records literally every day. So like for me, it's still a question of whether they can even get there and start. And that's where I'm not even sure I would bet on yet. But if you're asking me if they get in there and they actually start, then I'm convinced they will finish. And I'm not convinced it's the right idea, but I think if they start, they're finishing. I'm just not yet convinced they're actually going to start. Like it, well, I, it, well, you're I talking about though, right? And I mean, yeah, maybe optically it wouldn't look great if they started and didn't finish. But 
It would look far worse if they if they started and refused to shut it down while all their players are getting sick and Disney personnel are getting sick and the virus is just running rampant in this Petri dish and they decide that they're going to press on well, and keep playing anyway. You know, using the optics is probably my mistake anyway because let's face it, if they really cared about optics, I don't think they would be starting – uh, restarting a season in this like quote unquote bubble campus environment, whatever you want to call it. Well, the immediate world around their bubble burned from coronavirus, which is what is going to happen based on the numbers coming in right now. Yeah. Well, so I don't let think, alone the social justice. I don't think movement that, these, that is happening. I don't think that these positive tests really change anything. I mean, you've even heard, I think Woj again was reporting like basically this was not unexpected. Like teams expected that when they started testing their players, they were going to get positive cases. And that makes total sense because what is it now? I think it's at least 5% of the population has been infected with this thing, right? Maybe more. If you're talking about 5% of the NBA population being infected, then you're looking at, you know, at over, you know, something like 25 cases would be what you would expect. I mean, maybe you'd even expect more than that because so many of these players have been in the United States, which is which has essentially been like the epicenter of the virus for the last few months and has the highest case count in the world. Um, and, and we've also seen that a lot of these players have not exactly been staying at home. A lot of them have been going out and participating in these open runs. Uh, where you're not seeing a whole lot of social distancing and you're not seeing a whole lot of mask wearing. So I don't know that it's that it's especially surprising that we're seeing all these positive cases. And I agree with you. I think the big challenge right now is going to be to get everybody there virus-free um, is why they're doing this testing now. Uh, and, and they're going to continue to do that testing and make sure that at least uh, to the best of their ability, make sure that everybody who's entering that bubble um, is going to be virus free and not going to be contagious. I just, um, as much as they want to try and control this situation, it, it is beyond their control. Like there is only so much that they can do. And I think we're finding now that for as much planning and as much thought has gone into this, I think they have done about as meticulous a job as they could possibly do laying out all the health and safety protocols and any which way that they could possibly mitigate the risk here they've done and still like <laughs> this is a global pandemic and they're not really in charge at the end of the day so that's sort of where i'm at i mean i, I again i think that there's a decent chance that they will start the season in some capacity, uh, but to be able to keep a lid on it to the point that they're going to be able to spend, what is it going to be like two and a half months from start to finish inside of that bubble or mesh hat as one epidemiologist, I think told CBS's James Herbert and talking about how it's actually going to operate. I, I think that's going to be really, really tough to do. I think that's a good segue into um, like our main kind of topic of today. We, you know, I mentioned the basketball related news of guys opting out and a, a couple injuries and some signings. And the first one, uh, I think the biggest one obviously is Avery Bradley deciding to opt out. And you mentioned, you know, how long they're going to be in this bubble. So um, Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski broke this and, you know, based on his reporting, the big reason Avery Bradley is not going to go and is opting out is because his oldest son, his six-year-old son has had a history of some respiratory issues and specifically slow recoveries from respiratory issues. And so it's unlikely he would be able to join Avery Bradley's family in the bubble when families are allowed to join. I think around August 30th, once the first round is done and there's only eight teams left. If you take all that into consideration and you consider the fact that the Lakers, you know, you know, we, between the two of us, you expect them to get to the conference finals and have a long conference finals, I think. I expect them to win the title so they're getting to the finals. But regardless of whether you think they're going to the conference finals or the finals, that's 12 to 14 weeks from when they enter the bubble to the, at the very least, the end of the conference finals, if not the finals. 12 to 14 weeks. So in Avery Bradley's case, you would be asking a player, if his son can't join, I assume... There's going to be other people in his family that maybe don't join as well because they're not going to leave a six-year-old, obviously, alone. But point is, you'd be asking a player like Avery Bradley, whether it's his son, uh, a partner, 
whatever the case may be, to be away from their someone in their immediate family for 12 to 14 weeks. And that is asking way too much of a player. I, I'm sure maybe some other stuff went into it for Bradley as well. You know, like the week earlier had that piece with Woj where it really highlighted the fact that Avery Bradley has been a leading voice for the group of players who rightly believe that it's on others in the NBA, like team owners, for example, to do more to support the players' push for social justice. And, you know, I'm sure it's maybe not just one reason. There's a collection of factors, but these are very real concerns. And, you know, maybe maybe, maybe Avery Bradley ends up being the biggest name and, I don't know, maybe people ignore it, but they shouldn't because uh, off the court, you know, these guys are all human beings and they're all of equal value uh, regardless of what happens on the court. And then on the court, you know, again, we are a basketball podcast. We are going to talk about some basketball stuff too. On the court, this is this is a big blow, man. You know, I, I don't, maybe it's not the difference between whether I think the Lakers win the championship or not, but I, I truly believe this is a big blow. We're talking about a starter plays about 24 minutes a game on a top tier contender who can shoot the ball like a dependable three-point shooter and a very dependable perimeter defender who along with Danny Green formed a defensive backcourt that allowed LeBron James to excuse some defensive responsibilities in terms of guarding top perimeter players because that defensive backcourt was so good. So I don't know, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts for both on and off the court, but I think this is, you know, this is a pretty big blow. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton to say about on court. I agree with everything you said and the fact is I just sort of feel a bit weird talking about on-court stuff, given that I just said that I don't think that they're even going to reach a conclusion of the season. So it's weird to just like talk about the basketball side of this as if it's a foregone conclusion that that's going to happen. Um, but I think I'll just say like, you know, you mentioned that there were probably a couple different reasons that Avery Bradley decided to sit out, you know, whether it was the family uh, situation that you mentioned with his son or, the social justice issues that he had brought to the forefront, um, you know, a week or so back. And I think, I I feel like that's sort of going to be a recurring trend where it's not, there isn't just going to be one reason that a player decides to opt out. There are myriad reasons for any player to be hesitant about resuming the season under these circumstances. Um, I do want to point to uh, a statement that the NBA and the NBA and, and the NBA uh, Players Association put out yesterday, um, essentially talking about the discussions they've had about social justice. And the line that I flagged in there was um, the group that met yesterday agreed in principle that the goal of the season restart in Atlanta, in Orlando, will be to take collective action to combat systemic racism and promote social justice. Like, I think that's a pretty strong statement saying that, that that essentially is the goal and and for them to be focusing on that uh, as opposed to the basketball side of things, I think is an encouraging sign. Um, and, uh, you know, we've yet to see, I guess, what that is actually going to look like. Um, but I do think, um, you know, what we've seen is there, there is a, a strong sort of coalition of players uh, that want to put their minds together, put their resources together and funnel all of that uh, brain and money power toward, you know, causes that are actually going to further the interests of the black community in the United States. Um, and also put more pressure, I think, on the owners to help them in that cause and to do the same. Um, so to, to say that that's going to be kind of like the primary goal of restarting the season in Orlando. Um, I think that is certainly a good start. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this because you were kind of talking about Bradley and saying, this is what players are being asked to do. They're being asked to spend weeks upon weeks separated from their families. They're being asked to kind of drop everything, go to Orlando, stay there for, they don't know how long. And and play basketball games in uh, an environment that, you know, they can't guarantee is going to be safe. And I'm kind of of two minds about this, right? Because on the one hand, nobody's forcing them to do anything. Like this is the player's choice. 
Um, and just like there are any number of reasons for them to want to opt out, there are plenty of reasons for them to want to play as well. And we covered all this on the last episode. Obviously, you know, the the money being the biggest motivator, but I think, you know, given that that statement that the NBA NBPA put out, the social justice angle could be part of that as well. And I'm sure there are a bunch of players who do feel like the platform they're going to be afforded and the fact that they're all going to be together inside of that bubble uh, is going to provide them an opportunity to shine a light on some of these issues and be a part of the solution. So, I mean, do you think, do you think that that's true? Like, do you think that these players actually feel like nobody is forcing them to do this because this restart is contingent on a certain number of players actually being willing to go through with this. And so the pressure that some of them may be feeling, whether it's from their peers in the union or whether it's from the league and the owners maybe they don't feel like it's a choice. Maybe they feel like this is something they have to do and they owe it to the rest of the league to participate, even if they don't particularly want to. I don't think there is a clear cut answer. Like I don't think there's a one size fits all answer there. I'm sure that there are some that feel pressured based on the fact, I know it turned into kind of like a social media thing, but Patrick Beverly's tweet last week, right? When you remember his kind of sarcastic tweet, when he said, listen, if King James is saying we're playing, we're playing. And people took that, you know, a million different ways. But I think that is a good example of like, I'm sure there are players that maybe don't feel comfortable playing, that do feel pressured because of the guys like King James that that do want to play. I'm sure there are some guys that maybe might like are on the lower tier maybe of NBA salaries that, you know, remember if you have a, you know, a medical clearance or you get like one of these special clearances for not being there, you'll still get paid a, a certain amount. But if if you don't meet those um, I guess requirements, we'll call them, and still choose to opt out, then you are giving up some some money. And I'm sure there are players in the lower tier of salaries that maybe feel pressured based on not being able to or not wanting to give up that money. And who knows, maybe, you know, maybe there's some players on the other end of the spectrum that want to play and are going to play, but maybe they feel pressure from the other cohort of players, right? Whether, you know, the group we met, we've talked about, maybe Bradley and Kyrie Irving, who may be pulling them in another direction. And maybe they feel bad now about the fact that they're going to play. But like, I really don't think there is a clear cut answer. I think there, I think there was hundred percent players feeling pressure to maybe do something they don't want to do, whether that's playing, not playing, but I think it'll vary from player to player, right. just like so much related to this. I think the the Bertans thing is instructive, right? Bertans essentially announcing that he's not going to play. He's an impending free agent who could be in line for a pretty significant payday, had a breakout season this year, and he's looking at signing a contract that he may never have an opportunity to sign again. Why jeopardize that for, you know, a few weeks of meaningless and potentially dangerous basketball? You know, whether it's that he's going to be susceptible to the virus and its potential long-term effects, which we still don't fully understand, or an injury because this layoff has been extremely long and they're going to try and ramp up to game speed again in a, in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. And so the risk just isn't worth it for him, especially given that the Wizards are like a long shot to make it into the playoffs where they would have zero chance of even being competitive in a series against the Bucks, Like it's just not worth it for him. And I think anybody with any sense can see that and understand that. And yet he still gets called out on Twitter by Evan Fournier in, in a pretty ludicrous subtweet. And I, I think that is instructive where it's like, even a case that seems pretty clear cut like that, where anybody should be able to understand and empathize with his position. He still is getting pushback from some of his peers and like good on him for kind of clapping back at Fournier and, and taking a stand and not caving to the pressure. But I'm not convinced that there aren't others who are in that position who perhaps not publicly, but privately have been having those same kind of squabbles um, with other players in the league who don't think it's right that players would sit out when, you know, they're all kind of supposed to be in this thing together. You hit on this on the last episode when you're talking about how difficult it is to get 450 players on the same page and we're, we're certainly seeing the kind of difficulties of that right now. And to that point, I'm sure like, you, you know, Fournier, we saw in public, we saw it in, on social media, but like you said, behind the scenes, there's probably players, you know, getting some pressure that we don't see and probably from players a lot more friggin' meaningful and persuasive in the NBA than Evan Fournier, which yeah. by the way, rough, rough week on social media for French born NBA players. Cause, uh, 
In case you didn't see, Rudy Gobert is clowning again. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll leave it at that. Leave it at but that. it's not just Fournier. I know I made the joke about French NBA players, but it's not just Fournier. Like Patrick Beverly, who I have spent many words and minutes in my career talking about how much I enjoy and respect his ferocity and his tenacity. And it's just relentless competitiveness. And I still love all that. I also think that you can be relentlessly competitive and still be reasonable. And for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, Jared Dudley put out a tweet yesterday, Wednesday, and it was a very reasonable thought about how no one's talking, well, not no one, but like not a lot of people are talking about the potential for soft tissue injuries once this restart happens. Because um, while the NBA has afforded players some time to get back in the swing of things, it's not really that much time when you consider how long the layoff has been and all that. And, And Patrick Beverly quote tweets that and calls Dudley out saying essentially like, He's not hearing that because, you know, it's ball in, it's time to play. And that like basketball is now a year round sport and no one, like there's no time for these excuses. And that, first of all, if you just want to think about this logically, if you actually consider that basketball is now a year round sport, especially for top tier NBA players, if anything, that just supports Jared Dudley's argument more, because if you're admitting that it is now a year round sport where you're used to playing basically 365 days a year. And now you've had this three-month layoff where you haven't been, even if you've been able to work out, you have not been able to do anything close to the intensity of an NBA game. And in a month, a little over a month, you're going to be in the heat of the competition in the playoffs. If anything, that just supports Jared Dudley's argument that there's probably going to be soft tissue injuries. That's besides the point though, because the main point of this is like the the audacity of anyone, players or not, I don't care uh, what spectrum of life you fall on here, but the audacity of anyone to tie a player's decision to play or not play right now to their love of the game or their competitiveness or or their want to win or anything like that is just, it's honestly kind of sick. Like it's so stupid and disgusting. And right now, sure, we're talking about Patrick Beverly and Jared Dudley and I get that maybe, you know, those aren't the sexiest names from a basketball perspective. But like, as you mentioned, I'm sure there's some stuff behind the scenes going on as well. And I'm of the mind, I think I could speak for both of us that like players shouldn't be judged either way. You know, we went on, I talked last week about the 450 players. Everyone's different, just like we're all different. And there's going to be some players who don't feel comfortable playing given the health and safety regulations. Uh, There's going to be some players that rightly don't feel right about playing given everything going on in the world right now, this push for social change. And then there's going to be players who want to play and think that they can address issues while playing. And I, I don't think any of them are wrong. They're each entitled to their own opinion. But I definitely think people are wrong players or not for attacking players based on their decision on either end you know whether it's saying players don't care about what's going on if they do want to play or in this case Patrick Beverly calling out Jared Dudley because he what he had the wherewithal to say hey by the way there's probably going to be more injuries I hope for a sake it doesn't happen but like can you imagine now like Patrick Beverly like first week suffers some sort of stuff like he's going to get roasted and eviscerated and I do not wish that on him whatsoever but be careful what you say right now because you guys are walking into a basketball minefield okay health-wise and that's just talking about on the court so stop calling out your fellow peers for just having some goddamn sense yeah and I want to take it back to the LeBron thing obviously you you pointed out the tweet uh that Beverly put out saying that if if Bron says we're hooping we're hooping I think, you know, whether it's LeBron or whether it's another high-profile superstar, I feel like there is a threshold at which some dominoes might actually start to topple here. Because we were talking about this off the air last week, actually, when when we were sort of speculating about what could totally derail this plan right now. I think if if it were somebody like LeBron saying, you know what, I'm not down with this, I'm not taking the risk, I want to stay on the ground and be part of this movement, you know, for racial justice, whatever the reason happened to be. I think that fundamentally changes the situation because what the league has going for it, even though it's going to be ostensibly going and playing this kind of makeshift regular season slash playoff, whatever, whatever you want to call it to finish this season and crown a champion in empty stadiums. What the league has going for it is this idea of legitimacy. And you've talked a lot about the asterisk and how you don't believe that there should be an asterisk on whichever team wins the championship this year. But if LeBron James isn't going to be there, then suddenly you start to chip away at that legitimacy. And suddenly yeah, then, it, then, it, then it, you might as well just give the team that wins literally a golden asterisk because that's what they're winning. And if that starts to happen, if you start to see these superstars on you know championship contending teams saying that they're not going to play, 
then for everybody else, it's like, well, why, why are we taking these enormous risks? Like, what are we really doing it for? I mean, yes, there's the money, but obviously, like, these players care about their careers, they care about their legacies, they care about winning, and that has to be part of this as well. But if they're going there to play in what's going to be seen as, like, meaningless exhibitions because the players who really matter aren't there, then I think that's going to change the discussion considerably. So... I think that's why players like LeBron hold all the cards. And I don't don't want to take away from the fact that I know his voice carries a lot of weight and people take their cues from him. He's a leader among the players. And and that's part of it. But I think a big part of it too is just this idea of legitimacy. So whether it's LeBron LeBron or whether it's Giannis or Kawhi or any of these players who are kind of leading top teams who have a chance of winning the championship, I think in order for this thing to really fall apart, it's going to take one or more than one of those guys to say that they're not going to do it. And maybe we'll arrive at that point and maybe we won't. But for now, it just feels, all of this feels very tenuous and very up in the air because Florida is recording like record daily case counts. Um, There are a whole bunch of Disney employees who are petitioning to not open Disney World when the state had planned to. And And Disneyland already delayed, Disneyland in California has already delayed their planned opening. And it's just like, there's no accountability, you know, and this is what is really driving me nuts and making me really sad too, because I'm not saying like where we are in Canada is exempt from this. I mean, Ontario is, is moving ahead to like a, a phase two of its reopening without really considering a lot of the risks and without putting adequate protections in place for people who are returning to work and Florida, which essentially never really enacted any kind of meaningful shutdown in the first place. They're they're hiding behind this veil of like wanting to keep the economy running and assuming that people are going to think that that means that they care about citizens and businesses. But a lot of these corporations, I mean, they, they still don't have adequate paid sick leave, which means that people are going to be going to work sick. And it's like, it, it's just passing the buck, right? Like they're not, there's no responsibility on the count on the, on the part of these governments. And it just like the feeling that gives me is everybody's basically just on their own. And that's how you end up in a situation where it's like, okay, well, it's your choice. You know, you can decide to take the risk for yourself. You're going to sign a waiver and we're going to wash our hands of this thing. And it's totally up to you. Everybody is on their own. And that's a really scary thing, I think, because like who, who's looking out for these players at the end of the day, you know, who is looking out for Joe Schmo? Like it's, and the, like another thing is we don't even, I don't even think we have the full picture of the data that's coming out of Florida, right? Like there, there's a lot of evidence that they're fudging the statistics um, in order to move ahead with their reopening plans in a fashion that is putting a whole lot of people at risk. So we haven't had a, uh, a clown of the week here on Pound the Rock in a long time, but Governor DeSantis would definitely be in the running. Clown for... of the year. Clown, yeah. Well, clown of the year. There's some co- yeah, clown of the year. There's some competition. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know. It's just like the the sort of hubris, and I, I don't want to get into this because it's just going to make me upset. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to get into the whole like mask wearing uh, dispute. I don't want like. Yeah. It's just well. First of all, wear a damn mask. Yeah, that's all. I, right. That's all yeah. I have to say. We don't. We don't have to. Yeah go any further than that wear a damn mask um there there were plenty of good reasons for the league to have picked disney world as its location to resume the season disney owning espn the league's number one broadcast partner having the facilities the hotels and the courts it was sensible in that way but the fact that florida has been so irresponsible in its response to this virus has suddenly made that look maybe like not the best decision and i don't know if the league was really going to be able to get a full handle on this no matter where they decided to restart the season. But the fact that they're going to be doing it in a place where case counts are absolutely exploding and Disney employees are going to be going in and out, just it's just going to make it that much more difficult uh, for them to make this happen. So Everyone has spent, since the NBA announced its plans, like everyone has spent time talking about the various ways this can get derailed and the various things that can derail this the virus itself whether players feel comfortable playing 
while all this social unrest is happening around them. A whole whack of ideas, whether the bubble is secure or not, employees going in and out, a myriad of reasons why this thing can get derailed. The one thing that I don't think enough people were giving enough attention to as something that could derail it, and I assume, I hope the NBA was thinking about it, but it's just, just the very plain, simple fact that Florida and or the United States as a whole has catastrophically bungled their response to the virus. Yeah. Given that, some of the other stuff I'm, obviously is not irrelevant at all, but in terms of derailing this you know, planned NBA comeback, they might not even get to having to worry about the other stuff because of how bad this has been handled by the state of Florida and by the U.S. in general. And I feel like not enough people were talking about that. Like everyone was talking about like the way things can go wrong if they get to the bubble or whether players will feel comfortable in it. But it's like, well, just look at what's happening in this state they're supposed to play and how like... I don't know, man. One thing I did want to mention, because you had touched on it, that statement the NBA and the NBPA put out yesterday. Another thing that they had mentioned in that as well is that they also had conversations about um, taking real action in terms of increasing black representation across the NBA yeah. and its team, which you know includes executive ranks. I saw a stat yesterday. It, it's obviously not surprising. like We've kind of known it, but it, the, like seeing the numbers really make it hit home about how, you know, the NBA is essentially close to an 80% black league. But if you look at the top decision makers in basketball operations and the the head coaches, so 60 combined, it's like 17% black representation there. So we've known for a long time that the numbers don't add up there and something needs to be done. And I hope it's not just lip service. I hope the fact that there were so many players involved in this meeting means that there, there is going to be some some real change coming because like included in this meeting, Adam Silver was there, Michelle Roberts was there, the NBA's chief diversity and inclusion officer, Oris Stewart was there. And then among the players alone, like Chris Paul, Andre Iguodala, Malcolm Brogdon, CJ McCollum, Donovan Mitchell, Trey Young, among others. So I think the statement was a good start and, and that meeting obviously is a good start. And if if they follow through on it, then I really do think this is the beginning of some positive change for the NBA. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I think obviously the hope if this restart does get off the ground is that it is going to have a meaningful effect in that arena. Um, and if if that happens, then I think... I mean, look, I'm, I'm still going to worry about the health and safety of players. And like I mentioned before, we, we still don't really know what the long-term effects of getting this virus are. I think I saw one study. It was really like a small sample of people. I think it was done in China. Like they, they essentially looked at the lungs of 37 asymptomatic people who uh, had contracted the virus and more than half of them had some kind of lung damage. So even if you're not showing symptoms, uh, that doesn't mean your body isn't reacting to it. And that doesn't mean that it can't have uh, damaging long-term effects. So all I can really say is I, I want everybody to be safe. I want everybody to be healthy. And I want everybody to be making the most informed possible decision that they can. Like I've said before, I'm not going to judge anybody for the decision that they do make. I understand it from both sides. You just hope that everybody has like all the information and is is making the decision that's right for them and not feeling any pressure one way or another. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Okay, before we go, a couple things that I want to get to in a kind of a rapid fire uh, way that just feel like we can quickly banter about it. It'll only take a couple minutes. The first one is I wanted to get your opinion on this, especially because, you know, they're, it's your beloved team. But uh, I'm not sure if you saw Paul George's comments uh, this week. I don't, now I don't even remember what podcast it was on. It might have been the uh, Up in Smoke the, podcast. I thought it was the Knuckleheads. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The Knuckleheads podcast yeah. um, where Paul George said that what spurred his decision demand a trade and want out of Indiana was that I th- I guess the year before right around the time he ended up demanding a trade he claims that who he considered at the time the best power forward in the game 
told him he wanted to come to Indiana. Now, we don't know whether that was a fr- as a free agent, a trade, whatever the case may be, but Paul George claims that to be the case, says he took that to Pacers management, and Pacers management and ownership told him that they are a small market team that is too rich for their liking, and then countered George with a list of some, not subpar, but lesser than big men that that they could compliment him with. And then that's when he decided he wanted out. So as a diehard lifelong Pacers fan that you are, how does this make you feel? I'm not a lifelong Pacers fan. I need to, <laughs> I need to make that clear. I, I have really enjoyed this iteration of the team because I'm a big Oladipo fan. I really like Sabonis's game. Big Malcolm Brogdon guy. But this is not like... Some, yeah, Nate McMillan posters on your wall. <laughs> this is not some team that I've been attached to for my entire life, not by any stretch. Now that I've got that out of the way, I mean, Paul George has been trying to spin this whole situation ever since he demanded a trade, right? And has tried to make himself look like the kind of martyr in this situation where he was just doing all he can, all he could to win in Indiana and he just couldn't get ownership or the front office on board. I don't think that's entirely unfair. Like when is, have the Pacers ever paid the luxury tax before? I don't think so. So it's not like he doesn't have a point, but also if you're the front office of a small market team and it's going to, I think the people who kind of dug into this as far as the timing whittled it down to, I think Anthony Davis was the guy that they think he was referring to. I, I don't even know that the Pacers really had the goods to get an Anthony Davis deal done. Like if, if that is indeed who he was talking about, like why, why would the Pelicans have made that deal? Like what did the Pacers have to offer at that time? They had, they had nothing. So, yeah, so putting I, aside like whether that would even be realistic, like, you know, the Pacers would essentially be gutting their entire team and trading any number of future assets to get Anthony Davis presumably with a couple of years left on his contract and not feeling particularly good about their ability to retain him when he became a free agent. I can also understand from a front office perspective saying like, that's not really worth it for us. Yeah. And I don't know what to say. Like, I, I think I kind of don't feel like Paul George needs to be working as hard as he is to try and spin this in his own, you know, direction. Fans in Indiana are going to be pissed at him no matter what, as is their right, I suppose. But for the most part, I also think people understand that his time in Indiana had kind of run its course. There wasn't enough talent around him. That team wasn't going anywhere. And so for him to say that he wasn't going to re-sign with them when his contract was up, he had one year left on his deal. And look what Indiana got out of it. Like they got Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis, and they're in a better position now, yeah. arguably, than they were then. Like it kind of- I think both parties. Yeah. So- I think it worked out okay for them. I, I don't think he needs to be doing all this publicity, you know, these publicity tours trying to make it seem like he was the good guy in all of this. Like it was business for both sides. It was business. And I think that's fine. Okay. Well, now that we got the Pacers fans side of it, um, I'll give you the neutral. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I think, look, I think it's a very specific thing. It's so specific that I'm like convinced that he's, you know, he's being truthful. But what I, what I would say is that I think, a, you made a good point in that it might have been something like an Anthony Davis situation where there was like actually just no chance the Pacers could have pulled it off anyway. And maybe they told him that. And I don't know, in some way he misconstrued that as them saying like we're a small market team. I don't know. But I also think there's the possibility that like it, who knows, it could have also been a player that maybe Paul George just really overvalued. Like you never know sometimes with players, like it, whether it's like a friend or whatever the case may be, sometimes they have a very warped sense of like a friend player's on court value. Right. And, and I think that could have been the, the case as well. Who knows? Uh, but I do think in the end, it worked out for both parties. And I have a hard time believing that the Pacers actually had a shot to land whatever you want to, uh, the best power forward, a top five player in the game at the time. Uh, okay. A couple more things. Woj is reporting that J.R. Smith is the front runner to replace Avery Bradley before the roster deadline is set on July 1st. Do you believe two years removed from his last NBA game when he had already lost a step and wasn't even a good shooter anymore, which is the value he used to bring, do you believe other than pure entertainment value, the Lakers could possibly get any positive contributions from J.R. Smith in the year of our Lord 2020? Uh, no, not really. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm skeptical of that. But I mean, 
him and LeBron are obviously very well acquainted. Um, yeah, I think I, I think LeBron helped him kind of be the best version of himself for the few years that he was in Cleveland, and so I think maybe there's an outside chance that he can be somewhat useful as a guy who's playing like ten or so minutes a game and is kind of spotting up around LeBron and shooting like you know, 36, 37% from three. But like you said, I mean, he, the last time he played was last season when he, after 11 games, was essentially granted leave of absence from the team. And there were rumors throughout the season that he was going to sign on somewhere else, but he never did. And the same thing this year, I think the Lakers did bring him out for a workout before the season was shut down. He was kind of in competition with Dion Waiters for that roster spot the Lakers wanted to fill and they ended up going with waiters. So yeah, like he, he was trending very much in the wrong direction before he essentially stopped playing close to two years ago. So it's, it's hard to envision him providing much value to them. And certainly he, you know, he's not making up for what Avery Bradley would have given them. So. Yeah. I think JR is a rich Paul guy, which, you know, draw your own conclusions there. But I also think it kind of reeks of desperation when you consider the fact that, and I know, look, like I'm sure off the court, him and LeBron are fine, but uh, for all the jokes we made, like it, it was, you know, it really happened. J.R. Smith forgot the score in a finals game and ruined the greatest, one of the greatest individual performances, not just of LeBron James's career, but that we've ever seen on a goddamn basketball court and led to LeBron James breaking his hand that night because he apparently <laughs> punched the wall or whatever the hell he punched. Can and I, and don't forget, say, can I just say something about that though? Obviously, that was a boneheaded play. Yeah, and obviously, it happened in just such a embarrassingly visible way. He's dribbling yeah. the ball the wrong way. There's the meme of like LeBron just looking at him, like yeah. gesturing desperately with his hands, trying to get him to pay attention. So it seems like J.R. Smith cost him the chance to win that game, which. Maybe the single greatest game of LeBron James's career. But first of all, he grabbed the offensive rebound in the first place, right? Like George Hill missed the free throw and Jared sure, yeah. got the offensive rebound. No argument. And it's just funny to think if he hadn't gone in, timed it right, grabbed that offensive board, none of this would have happened. Yeah. The game was also tied at that point. The Cavs had a timeout at that point, which Ty Lue could have used. Yep. There was no guarantee that they were going to score on that possession. And if they hadn't, I think it's still pretty likely that they would have lost in overtime. And even if they'd won that game, I feel pretty confident in saying they were losing that series in five. So I, I sort of feel like it's but been you know blown what? out of you proportion. Know and it's been, used, it's been used as this like cudgel to, to, to kind of like beat down and make fun of J.R. Smith and like minimize his career to sort of this one play and this one meme well, where I think, I think there's been a lot more than that. Like, I don't think people minimize that. You know, I think there was a, a few clown moments. Jr. And I'm a J listen on the court. I actually yeah. thought Jr. was underrated. He was one of the best shooters of his generation, but I also think there was more than just that one clown moment. Fair enough. But also like he was a, significant contributor on a championship team like a couple of years before 100%, that. So, uh, 100%. But go ahead. But what I was gonna, what I was going to say is if you remember, if you recall at the end of that series, LeBron went on like, uh, I want to say like a five to seven minute rant in the aftermath of that series when he came out with the sling on and, and <laughs> revealed to the world that he had hurt his head about how his next basketball decision and whatever's in that, like he was really going to value basketball IQ. If you remember, like he went and everyone knew what he was talking about. And at least one of the players he was talking about when he talked about needing more basketball IQ around him. And I just think it, it reeks a little bit of desperation that now a couple years later, J.R. Smith is the favorite to join the Lakers to replace a player that is much better than J.R. Smith in the year 2020 and a much smarter player than J.R. Smith. I know you're not replacing Avery Bradley with equal value at this point in the year, but I think you can replace Avery Bradley with a lot better basketball IQ than J.R. Smith. And I do think that... Like, who could they have signed? Are you available? Can you can you give the Lakers 10 minutes? Because I think you have more basketball IQ than J.R. Smith. I think I do it. Um... If we're, if we're talking from a strictly basketball IQ standpoint, I think there are a lot of warm bodies who can play five to 10 minutes a night in the NBA that are not actually us, that are professional basketball players that could be plugged in and 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 just don't carry some of the same IQ-related risks that JR does, especially given that it's been a few years since he even was a positive 
on the court. Yeah, but I just don't think that they were going to sign anybody who was going to move the needle really one way or another. So if they're going to sign a clutch client and a guy that LeBron likes and wants to have around, then to me, it's like, what's the difference really? Like, I, right. you know, who, I just, who are they signing to fill that roster spot that was actually going to make a difference? Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, right. they, they haven't officially signed JR yet, right? It's just been, no, no, no. He's just considered the favorite. Yeah. Right. So if somebody wants to throw a name out there that they think is actually going to have a chance to be a meaningful contributor, then I'm all ears. But from where I well, sit, like, like Vince Carter, I guess, <laughs> if he actually, <laughs> yeah, if he'd been yeah. willing to keep playing, would yeah. have been would have been a pretty decent addition, maybe. Yeah, that actually would have been awesome. Uh, everyone wants like Jamal Crawford to land to the team. He still has so many fans, and like I don't know how many times I can try to explain to people that. Even the last time he won sixth man of the year, he was not a positive impact player in the NBA. He hasn't been efficient in a long time. He's barely ever been efficient, actually. And like while there are obviously things he'll always be able to do, like put the ball on the floor and, and break down a defense and, and cross people over, like he's lost a step in that way too. And it's just he's like, forty years Jamal, old. Yeah. And and he was a net negative player at like thirty-five. So yeah. Please yeah. stop calling for Jamal Crawford to get signed. Okay, the, did oh, he drop fifty in in his last game? I feel like that's part of the reason why everybody is so attached yeah. to this idea of him uh, of him playing again. Because I, I feel like his last game was like a fifty. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're right. And honestly, I think Jamal like Jamal Crawford is probably better than J.R. Smith at this point in time, don't you think? You know what? I I'm not sure about that because like I I have some faith that if he if everything kind of lines up, JR could get hot as a shooter for like three weeks, maybe two weeks. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Crawford's not a good shooter either. Um, all right. By the way, so the last game of Jamal Crawford's career, he was on the Suns at the time. Uh, 51 points on 18 of 30 shooting and 7 of 13 from three and 8 of 9 from the line. Five rebounds, five assists, a steal and a block. And That's an epic performance. And he was a minus five. Yeah. It's it's an epic performance and a great way for him to end his career, which is what that game should be. Um, all right. The only other thing I wanted to mention, I'm not sure if you saw it, but uh, the Knicks, I don't know if it's official now. Yeah, I think it's official that they, they've also hired uh, World Wide West to join their front office. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think either of us know whether it's a good move or a bad move. But the one thing I did want to say is that it still seems like the Knicks are very obsessed with hiring in a way that like they're still very obsessed with like building it seems like they're still tying a lot of their future success to just being able to like reel in a big fish and you know i don't know maybe knicks fans are a little encouraged by the fact that they are starting they've cleaned house and whatever the case may be but i would just caution them about the fact that it still seems like they're very concerned with like how they're perceived by other players and I don't, as long as caution, caution. I don't think you need to caution Nick fans <laughs> about anything at this point. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think I do because I think even the most tortured of Knicks fans still seems to get excited when, you know, front office shuffling happens. And I don't know, maybe maybe the team of Leon Rose and World Wide West does lead them to the promise. I don't know who the hell am I, but I just think that it still seems concerning that like they're they're very concerned with the whole optics and perception thing and like it still all seems tied to getting meetings and landing the big free agent fish and it's like I feel like there is so much more about your house that you need to get in order before that's what you are considering. Yeah, no arguments here. And I mean, we'll see. Their coaching search at least has seemingly been pretty expansive, which is good to see because I feel like in the past they've had you know they've kind of narrowed in on a candidate right away haven't cast a very wide net or have only done so uh in a sort of performative way where they already know who their guy is going to be and the the quote-unquote search is more of a formality Uh, but it does seem like they've interviewed a ton of candidates it still feels like to me they're going to wind up just going with Thibodeau and so so maybe that will follow a familiar pattern um I don't think that he is the right coach for that team or that situation, but I'm keeping an open mind and I guess we'll see where all this goes. But, you know, the bigger issue for the Knicks right now is I just don't think that they have enough young talent to build with right now. Um, and I'm, I feel like I'm a, I'm a higher on RJ Barrett than most. And 
I'm high-ish on Mitchell Robinson, but I don't think that's enough of a young foundation to build a sustainable winner with. They got to find a way to add to that. They're obviously going to have a, a high pick in the coming draft and we'll see what they can do with that. But for now, I just think the, the kind of lack of young building blocks is the biggest concern for that team. Yeah. All right. Well, 70 minutes later, I think that is another uh, solid week of Pound the Rock. Uh, we will be back next week, assuming nothing crazy happens between now and then, in which case we would return earlier. But if not, we'll be back next week, probably around that June 30th, July 1st um, time, because July 1st is when the roster setting deadline is for the bubble. And and maybe we'll be a little closer to knowing whether the bubble is even happening at all. But uh, we will probably be back then middle of next week to discuss what I guess uh, the 22 rosters look like and, and whatever other news breaks between now and then. So uh, unless Joe Wolfon has anything else to say about the Indiana Pacers. Wear a mask. Wear a mask indeed. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cachado. Pound the Rock.